Our scripture this morning is found in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. This is the word of God for you, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Well, good morning again and welcome to worship here at Pittman Park. Whether you're in the sanctuary or joining us online this morning via live stream or later on in the week, it's good to be with you. Over the past three weeks, we've been talking about parenting in the 21st century and all the uh, trials and tricks and traps um, that come along the way as we seek to be good parents, good leaders of the next generation uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And one of the challenges of parenting is that we love our stuff and we love our kids and sometimes there's a conflict between these. Uh, Andy Stanley shares a great illustration of this, a great story about this one time when he was caught in that tension between his kids and his stuff. Andy, as you probably know, is an up-and-coming preacher in the Atlanta area, and the first, for the first time in his life, got to buy the car that he wanted. He wanted an Infinity, and uh, it was a high-mileage Infinity, and it was dark green and was kind of black-looking at night, and he loved this car. He absolutely adored this car, and his kids were like five, four, and three at the time, and um, one day he was taking out the trash, And he noticed that on the hood of his new infinity was a great big letter A that had been scratched into the paint. Upon a closer inspection, he noticed not only was there a large A on the hood, but several other practice letters scratched into the hood. And within minutes, he's calling his sons out and his daughters out, and and they're standing there before him. And he demanded to know who scratched the car, right? Have you ever been in that moment? Who did this deed, right? At that point, Garrett, their five-year-old, piped up and said, Allie did it with a walk. A walk. A rock. That's, that's kid for rock. Our kids used to bring home pockets full of walks, right? Allie was three years old. And so she pointed at the hood of the car and she said, Daddy, I did it. I was practicing my letters. <laughs> Proudly. So what do you do in that moment, right? Like you love your car, maybe it's your boat, maybe it's whatever. What do you do in that moment whenever there's tension between what you love, your possessions, your property, and your kids? Because nobody makes a rule, right, when they're first raising their kids to say, all right, here's the deal, kids. We're going to discipline you according to your uh, dishonor, your disobedience, and and your unwillingness uh, to pay attention. And also, don't write your letters on the car with a walk, right? Like, that's not on anybody's mind. Just like for Stephanie and I, uh, years back, um, we were going to make some cookies for the kids, and we had been to Costco, and, and you know, like when you go to Costco, you can't buy a small quantity of anything? Like, we bought a uh, five-pound bag of semi-sweet chocolate morsels, right? So we're going to make, like, we should be able to make cookies for decades. I'm sorry, Lily Grace. I'm going to tell the story today. 
We should have been able to make cookies for decades, right? And so we're tearing the house, the cupboards apart. Like, where did the, where did the semi-sweet chocolate morsels go? Well, we found the bag underneath Lily Grace's bed. All five pounds gone. And here's the thing, friends, like you can't make a rule for that, right? Like it never crosses your mind that your child will sneak the five pounds of semi-sweet chocolate morsels and leave you cookie-less in the afternoon. It's not disobedience, right? Like it's, it, it, it's not dishonoring. You just don't have a, a rule for that. Now you can mete out punishment, right? Like you can, you can give punishment in that moment, but to what end, Right? Surely your child will remember not to ever write their letters on the car or eat the semi-sweet marshmallows, all five pounds. But they don't understand all that goes into that moment. What would you do in a situation like that? Andy said that he did the only thing he knew to do, and that was kneel down to his daughter and say, Allie, please don't do that anymore. To which she replied, yes, sir. She gave him a hug and went back inside, and she never practiced her letters with a walk on the hood of the car again. What you do in the moment when that tension arises will make all the difference in the relationship you have with your children. And I've gotten that right on occasion. I've probably gotten it wrong on more than one occasion. So today we're wrapping up our series, Parenting in the 21st Century. So if you're a parent, if you hope to be a parent, if you've been a parent for a number of years, you're a grandparent or a niece or a nephew or or an uncle, or you just feel the weight of responsibility for raising the next generation of children in the faith, this series is for you. And as I pointed out previously, that when it comes to good examples of family and parenting, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is not that unhelpful, not that helpful or encouraging. In fact, my modern standards, it's pretty much an encyclopedia of family dysfunction. You can pick any of the patriarchs or any of the great families in the Old Testament. You'll see the family dynamics are pretty messed up. But Jesus and the New Testament authors provide us with a north star to guide us when it comes to our parenting. And while Jesus never talked about parenting directly, he laid the foundation for New Testament parenting when he laid the foundation for New Testament behavior by giving us a new command. This is called the law of Christ. Jesus says, a new command I give you to love others as I have loved you. The law of Christ is to love others as Jesus has loved us. And the way forward for us as parents is embedded in this commandment, in that one all-encompassing command. I use the term embedded because it's not up at the surface. The implications for parenting aren't apparent right there on the surface level. Again, Jesus wasn't even talking specifically to parents. But fortunately, Paul came along and gave us some some handles to put on what Jesus' love looks like. He says, here's what the brand of Jesus' love looks like. Here's how love behaves. Here's how love behaves under pressure. Here's how love behaves at home. And Paul scatters these applications all throughout his New Testament letters. But his most famous explanation of what Jesus' brand of love looks like and is most instructive for parents, is found in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 
So in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we've been walking through this passage for the last several weeks. In verse 4, he says this, love is patient. And that was enough for one whole sermon right there, right? Love is patient. We got stuck there because parenting often falls apart with our patience. Then last week, we made it through three more applications. And that is that love is kind. And kindness is loaning people our strength and not reminding them of their failures. It's loaning our kids our strength rather than reminding them of their weakness and failures. Then love does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. Then we spend a lot of time on this next one. Love does not dishonor others. Honor and mutual respect are at the heart of every mutually satisfying relationship. So honor is a better goal than excuse me, honor is a better goal than obedience. Because obedience always asks the question, how much can I get away with? Right? How much can I get away with before I get punished? Honor points us in an entirely different direction. It points us back toward making the relationship right and lifting up others ahead of ourselves. Picking up where we left off last time, Paul follows up the honor discussion with a similar idea when he writes, Love is not self seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love isn't selfish. Love puts the interests and the needs of others first, which let's be honest, if we put others first, that would solve most of our relationship problems. Then Paul connects the dots for us by addressing what is perhaps the most common expression of self-seeking within the context of relationships and certainly within the context of parenting when Paul says, that love is not easily angered. Now that word angered is a particular term that Paul uses. It, it's a cooking term, in fact. It's translated in other places in the Bible as stir. So Paul is literally saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 that love isn't easily stirred up. Here's the question, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents down the street. Is your... Anger easily stirred up? Is your anger easily stirred up? Do your kids ever get you stirred up? It's such a great term uh, because when you're cooking and you stir a pot, what are you doing? You're getting the vegetables off the bottom, right? Like you're getting them off the bottom and back up into the top, up to the top of the pot that you happen to be stirring. The stuff on the bottom comes to the top. How about this? Have you ever bought natural peanut butter? You know what I'm talking about? We did this one time, didn't we? Just once. Because when you buy natural peanut butter, it looks great when it's sitting there on the shelf. Then you take it home and it promptly separates itself, right? The peanuts go to the bottom. Then there's that buttery stuff in the middle of the smushed peanuts. Then on top, there's like two inches of oil. You've seen this, right? You've bought natural peanut butter? And so if you want peanut butter and it's of the natural variety, you go to the pantry with your spoon in hand and commence a 30-minute process of stirring up the stuff inside of the cup, right? Right? That's why we only did it one time. Because when I want peanut butter, I want to open up the cupboard, and there'll be Jif in there, and I can have a scoop of peanut butter, and that will be that. But no, with the, with the natural peanut butter, you have to get in there and work for it, right? Like, you've got to stir that stuff up. The peanuts have to come from the bottom, and the oil has to go, uh, go from the top to the bottom of the jar, 
And that 30-minute process leaves you frustrated and sweaty and not the least interested in eating peanut anymore. When we stir a pot or, or the natural peanut butter, we aren't creating or adding anything new to the mix. We're not adding anything in that moment. We're just surfacing what was already there to begin with. You're just bringing the peanuts from the bottom to the top and the oil from the top. You're pushing it down to the bottom. You're picking the rice from the bottom of the pot and bringing it up. What was there was already there to begin with. And I know you don't want to hear this, but speaking from personal experience, it's not our kids that make us angry. Our kids just stir up and bring to the surface the stuff that's already within us. And friends, they do it better than anybody else. It's in moments when our kids stir us up that we finally understand our own parents, right? Because we stirred up what was already in them. We brought to the surface stuff that was in their heart that maybe they did or didn't end up dealing with. So Paul tells us, love, true love, is not easily stirred up. It's not easily angered. But he goes on to tell us that it's our self-seekingness, our desire to get our own way that causes us to be so easily stirred up. It's our desire for our kids to obey and to go outside and play that gets us stirred up when it doesn't happen. The truth is no one has ever made us angry. They just stirred us up. Having our emotions stirred is inevitable. And chances are in each stage of parenting, you will discover a new best way to regain perspective and recharge your emotional batteries because your kids are going to stir you up in a different way. Every season of parenting is like that. At least that's my experiencing so far. While I'm on this, talking about emotions and how we deal with our emotions, parents, it's important for you to talk to your kids about the emotional side of your life. Don't hide it. Don't pretend. Being emotional isn't weakness. That's humanness. One child psychologist put it this way. He said, it's scarier for a child to have a parent who is struggling and doesn't talk about it versus a parent who is struggling and does talk about it. That's Eli Leibowitz. It's easier, excuse me, it's scarier for a child to have a parent who's struggling and doesn't talk about it versus a parent who is struggling and does talk about it. So have age-appropriate conversations about the emotional side of life because it's healthy for everyone. It's healthy for you. It's healthy for your children, your grandchildren. Our kids need to hear us say that it's okay to feel and express their feelings. After all, somebody's going to come along and stir their pot. And it's probably going to be you. (laughs) And when that happens, they need to understand what's happening inside of them and what to do. And if you haven't figured it out for yourself, it's going to be hard to show them how to figure it out for themselves. So I want to press into this just a little bit more, and I want to invite another author into the discussion, another New Testament author into the conversation. Before we continue with what Paul said, I need to remind you something that James, the brother of Jesus, had to say. James, who knew Jesus in a way no one else did. James, who was standing outside of the house calling for Jesus to come out because they don't understand what Jesus is doing. James, Jesus' brother had some important and practical relationship insights to share with us. 
some of the best that you'll ever hear. And Paul explained, excuse me, Peter, Peter, here we go. Peter, Paul, we're going, talking about James. James, James explains why we are so easily stirred up by the people that we love most. And he provides a handle for helping our kids understand why we get stirred up. So James asks a question in James chapter 4 and then answers it for us. And here's the first question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What's the source of the fighting and quarreling that you have in your life, in your family, in your relationships, at your work? We're immediately tempted to point at someone else's behavior, someone else's words, someone else's actions, someone else's tone. But James and Paul both say no. That behavior, those words, even the tone, simply stirred up what was already in you. So James answers his questions. His question, excuse me, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. You covet what you cannot get, and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel, and you fight. Often, the external strife we live in is because of internal strife inside of our hearts. The warring passions inside of us, the source of our anger, our quarrels and conflict is often that we're not getting something that we want. Parents, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm, pe- I'm speaking from personal experience. Often it's our internal conversations that dictate our external behavior toward our children and toward our spouses. And it's difficult It's difficult when this involves our children. What would help me is when I would step back long enough to remind myself of this simple but powerful idea. I was and I am a much better parent when my internal conversation would go something like this. Jonathan, in the midst of the heat of conflict, Jonathan, be honest. Part of the problem is you're not getting what you want. You want them to do their best. You want them to pay attention. You want them to quit picking on each other. But Jonathan, you are part of the reason why you're so stirred up. And the reason you're about to say things you'll have to apologize for later is because you're not getting what you want. Admit it, Jonathan. Own it. And when I own my slice of the conflict, when I own my piece of the problem... What happens for me internally is that the temperature begins to come down. James is right. Fights and quarrels erupt when somebody isn't getting what they want, deserve, desire, or need. So parents, husbands, and wives own your slice of the conflict so you can lower the temperature. Own your slice of the issue so that we can have a reasonable conversation. That's why I suggest that you get in the habit of stopping the conversation and saying when it's appropriate, you know what the problem is? I'm not getting what I want. I'm not sure there's more valuable relation, a more valuable relationship principle to teach and to model for our kids than the reason behind every conflict they will encounter with someone, or usually two someones, isn't getting their way. The reason we find ourselves in conflict is because one of us or both of us or all of us isn't getting our way. And so Paul says to 
the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, listen, love isn't easily angered. It doesn't get stirred up. But love is also not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It recognizes what's really going on. When we have... We have to get this right as parents because our words, they weigh so much. We talked about this some last week. When we allow our emotions to take over our mouths, we talk to and react to our children as if they have the context and the capacity of an adult. And the truth is, they have neither. Worse, we wouldn't dream of talking to another adult the way that we talk to our kids sometimes. Am I right? When we do that, adults that are around us chalk it up to us having a bad day. Our adult friends look at us and think, what's wrong with you? But our kids, they process our anger as what's wrong with me? That my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa talk to me that way. So are you easily stirred up? Are you willing to admit that the peanuts at the bottom of the jar or the vegetables at the bottom of the pot were already there? Will you be willing to pause and acknowledge that that you have a slice of the conflict because you aren't getting something that you want? And yes, what you want from and for your kids is probably good for them. But the frustration, the emotion, and the anger all stem from something you aren't getting. You're not getting what you want. Own that because that's good parenting. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, or put another way, when love is not self-seeking, it will not be easily angered. But there's more. Paul's not through with us here in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's difficult for a parent, right? Because we're used to keeping a record of everything that our kids do. But there's no win in reminding our kids of their past failures. They already know what those failures are. And besides parents, that's a bit of a power play. When someone holds your past over you, who's in the elevated position? And if you're a parent, you're already in an elevated position with your children. There's no need to open the filing cabinet and the journals to point out all the places they've fallen short. Friends, that's also true in your marriage. There's no need to open the filing cabinet. That's not what love does. Forgiving, and even if you have to pretend to forget, is always your best bet. Not to mention, it appears that that's exactly what God does for us. Because he loves us in spite of the ways that we have fallen short of his high standard. He loves us in spite of the ways that sin and brokenness have informed the way we've thought, spoken, and acted toward him and toward the people around us. God forgives and forgets that which we've done because his grace is sufficient to save us. But Paul continues on. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love loves to catch and celebrate when people are doing the right thing. Love doesn't delight in or feel a sense of victory at catching people doing the wrong thing. There's plenty of those moments when you're a parent, friends. You can always catch your kids doing the wrong thing. And you can punish all those moments or you can choose a different tact and celebrate the good that you see. 
Celebrate when your child is doing the right thing. Celebrate when they get it right. Love isn't reminding anyone, especially your children, of their past failures. It's celebrating the good that they do. And I want to celebrate you again this morning for the way that you loved our community on Wednesday night. You didn't have to keep giving out candy. Kelly, you didn't have to keep making, um, uh, uh, what is it, cotton candy. I mean, the lines, the lines that were backed up from, from the trunks back to the church were incredible, but the line that extended from the cotton candy down to the end market at Fair Road, that was shocking. <laughs> Michael's Keys, you didn't have to stand there and keep making cotton candy. You chose to celebrate with the people who are on our campus celebrating this community. You chose to love and to keep pressing in. And I love that about you guys. I love that you were willing to keep going because you saw the joy that what your contributions were bringing. You saw that one more piece of candy lit up a child's face, that one more trip on the hayride helped them to have an incredible experience. You saw that my giving that you were able to receive blessing after blessing. Thank you for loving and celebrating. Paul continues on in verse 7. He says, love always protects. Love always defends. Love stands guard. Loves, love keeps bad things out. Knowing how to protect our kids, y'all, is really hard especially as they get older. Between social media and friends, it's hard to know how to protect our kids without being overly protective. And you're not going to get this exactly right. We're not getting this exactly right. We're trying real hard with Addie and Lily Grace. But I can tell you, if you're going to go one way or the other, you're better to err on too much protection than too little. But once you've established protection, relax your grip slowly because it's easy to grant more freedom. But it's difficult to take away freedom once it's been given. Trust your gut and know who your kids' friends are. One more thing on this. Freedom should have very little to do with age. Uh, Here in the state of Georgia, uh, something miraculous happens when you turn 15. The state entrusts you with the responsibility to operate a motor vehicle. Did you know that? That a 15-year-old can get a learner's permit? That's going to happen in our family in... in less than six months. The state believes that just because a child is 15, they have all the capacity needed to, offer a, to, to operate a multi-ton vehicle. Not only that, when they turn 16, they have the capacity to drive that vehicle by themselves. Is that scary, y'all? Have you met a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old? How about this? Back whenever I was, back whenever I turned 16, I turned 16 on July the 1st, 1997, and I promptly went down to the DMV, which was closed. So I came back a couple days later to get my license. And at 16 years old, I had all the freedom to drive my mother's vehicle wherever I thought I could drive. I could drive to California. I had the right. I certainly did not have the maturity. Age and maturity are two different things. And parents, you know when your children are mature enough to take on new responsibilities, so stand your ground. Just because everybody else is getting an iPhone doesn't mean they need to get an iPhone. Just because everybody else has Snapchat doesn't mean that they need Snapchat. Just because everybody else is getting a car 
doesn't mean that they need a car. It has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with maturity. Parents, stand your ground. Because standing your ground means that you love your son or daughter more than you love the approval of your son or daughter. Parents who seek the approval of of their children over and above what's best for their children end up with neither their approval nor what's best. It's in those fierce tests of wills that you discover what and who you value most. And sometimes, for the sake of loving our children, we have to be their foe. Or at least that's how they may perceive us. But love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Sometimes, love has to protect fiercely. But wrapping up our discussion I want you to remember that there's no such thing as a perfect parent or as a perfect child or a perfect family. Honestly, you don't even want perfect kids because a perfect kid would not want to hang out with you or me because we're all imperfect. We're all imperfect. What we need, friends, is to choose to discipline and to love our children toward a healthy relationship. Discipline and love them so that they'll continue relate to relate to us. This is what our Heavenly Father did for us. He didn't dole out punishment for our brokenness and sin. No, instead, He stepped into our situation, demonstrated His love for us by taking on our sin and going to the cross on our behalf and rising for eternal life that we might spend eternity with Him if we know Him as our Lord and as our Savior. This is what God has done for us. So parents, remember, your behavior, the way that you act toward your children will determine whether or not your kids like or want to be like you. That's why anchoring our parenting in Jesus' all-encompassing command to love others the way Christ has loved us is so important because it doesn't just instruct our thoughts. It instructs our behavior. Endeavor to love your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, the way your heavenly Father has loved you. Endeavor to love them by being patient, by going at their pace, not yours. Be kind, loan your strength to them because they need it. Celebrate their successes, minimize their failures, create a culture of honor in your family, own your slice of the conflict, and protect, trust, hope, and persevere. And lastly, I want you to consider this, that the most significant thing you may do in life may not be something you do. It may be someone you raise. I'm going to say that again. The most significant thing you may do in life is not something that you do. It may be someone that you raise. Parents, grandparents, nieces, nephews, uncles, all those family members, You've been entrusted with a tremendous gift, the next generation. How will you love them? How will you honor them? How, you, how will you protect them? How will you help them know the love of God that has saved you and stands to save them? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today for the privilege of being in worship in this place, and for the awesome responsibility that you have given us to raise up the next generation in faith. Help us, God, 
to love them the way that you have loved us, God. Help us to love sacrificially. Help us to put them first, Lord, so that they might know how deeply we love them and how deeply you love them as well. Watch over us and guide us as we seek to be your disciples and to raise up disciples of you so that as we transform the world, their lives might be transformed as well because they've experienced your grace, your peace, and your love in us and through us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.